everyone, welcome to episode 54 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me as always is Collins Mullen. Hey Collins! What's up Chris? How was SCG Indy? SCG Indy, yeah. It uh, it happened, it was modern. Uh, kind of our first solo event in, it feels like a, a little bit. A long time, yeah, kind of. That's always kind of fun to see, you know, we've been we've been looking at modern lately, and it's interesting to see kind of, you know, what people are what people are doing there, especially for solo events, we kind of get like a more clean read on what's going on there. Yeah, it definitely can get kind of wonky looking at those team events and trying to really pull information, because you don't know who won, you don't know if somebody carried their team or whatever, and it's it's nice just to have a basic event that you can actually pull information from. Although this one was kind of chaos mode uh at the end of it (laughs) but it felt like that a little bit for sure definitely a lot of weird factors in play but yes but definitely some factors that we can pull out like humans is good and militia bugler is the correct card to be running in humans is is an easy takeaway from this weekend yeah Um, yeah yeah for sure but yeah i think we are going to be mostly talking about modern today taking into account that a lot of the stuff from the open and, and kind of looking forward to the you know the pro tour is is all three formats so we'll probably talk about modern quite a bit and some standard and, and what we expect to see at the pro tour okay so for today we're doing kind of a, a variant on the keeper mall this is more of a a, a trb a top or bottom um, <laughs> so so lee has given us a sample hand uh kci versus humans we're on kci game three versus humans we are on the draw, and we have an opening hand that we're keeping of six cards. And this opening hand is Engineered Explosives, Mindstone, Terrarian, Chromatic Star, Chromatic Sphere, and Darksteel Citadel. So one land, all three of the different, uh, you know, stars, eggs, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, a Mindstone, and an Engineered Explosives. So we're on the draw, and we're trying to determine whether to scry a Galvanic Blast to the top or the bottom, and we're playing against humans. Right, so the the question here, it's pretty clear that we're looking for lands with this hand, right? Yes. And our, you know, our, our eggs hopefully are going to be able to find, help us with, th- with, that, with that problem of, you know, finding lands. But when we're looking at our scry, we're kind of looking at one of the cards that's going to be really, really good in this matchup. You know, Galvanic Blast is, you know, against humans, taking out, like, a meddling mage that's on something important, or, like, a Thalia or something like that. I think all, all, you know, a lot of good reasons to keep this card on top. But it's not, you know, it's not what we, we're gonna need pretty clearly, you know, with this hand. You know, we need to make our land drops. So, and this, I feel like this is a kind of, like, a classic question that comes up a lot. And, you know, this is just, like, one of the examples of, of this type of decision where, you know, you keep, like, a land light hand, and you scry, and there's a card that you that's really, really good in the matchup, but it's not a land, right? So, you know, this is something that I've run into, you know, several, several times playing Magic. And I think that, you know, after thinking a lot about this type of scenario, I think that it's generally pretty important to hedge towards making sure that you can play magic and 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 that requires making your land drops and and being able to cast your spells right so i feel like because 
you know, like there are a couple of scenarios where if we keep this on top and then we brick on lands for a little bit, we could get severely punished for that. Say we brick on lands for a minute and our opponent casts a Thalia, then we can't even cast this Galanic Blast, you know, since we, you know, we haven't hit the lands that we're looking for. So I think that in general, in scenarios like this, I'm going to lean towards looking, you know, making sure that we can actually like play the game and, um, and make our land drops and do everything like that. And another incentive with this hand in order to bottom this Galvanic Blast is because we already have a, a really good interactive piece in our hand in Engineered Explosives. So because we already have that card, I think that, you know, that's just more of an incentive to, to bottom the Galvanic Blast here. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the extra information that we have here um, that we, we didn't say yet but I guess I, I don't remember if I read out that our opponent is also on six cards. So the fact that they sure. mulliganed makes it less of a guarantee. You know, you're never going to... With humans against KCI, you're never going to keep a seven-card hand that doesn't have some some disruption in it. Like, probably if you don't have uh, a meddling mage or a Thalia, like, like, your hand has to be doing something really crazy to keep a no Thalia, no meddling mage hand on seven against KCI because you need some sort of defense against the thing that they're doing. Yeah. Um, going to six makes it less of a 100%. You know, they're still looking for that card, but they might not have gotten it. And uh, yeah, like if we didn't have that engineered explosives, and especially if they were on seven, then I would be really hesitant to bottom this Galvanic Blast because I think you are going to need a removal spell to win the game. I, I think you will not be able to get through the there will be a meddling major there will be a thalia you have to have a way to kill one of those things or you just can't do your thing but you know the fact that the explosives is in the hand and the fact that uh i mean them being on six is not that huge of a factor here i guess so yeah i, I think that that having the one removal spell to start with and i think i want to get that that explosives down like as quickly as possible even if it allows them to sort of craft their plays around it a little bit like i don't want them to blind meddling mage uh the explosives or take it with a freebooter or something like that and i guess that's the real reason to think oh maybe i do want this blast as well is because if you get your explosives freebooted but you're operating on kind of a low resource low information basis right now already and and yeah to me like the safer thing to do is is aim for those land drops and then trust your deck to kind of as long as you can play magic and use your cards trust your your deck to get you out of whatever situation you've found yourself in yeah i definitely agree with that and yeah like even even a six card hand post board humans versus kci i would i would find it very very likely that they have one of thalia kaisel freebooter or meddling mage in their hand i think right. that you know Keeping keeping a hand that doesn't have any of those, even on six with humans, is is in this matchup is pretty pretty risky and probably wouldn't wouldn't want to do that. So you know you're gonna run into some sort of disruption, but you know as long as we can make our land drops, the deck has a lot of tools to fight through that. And like you know, Galvanoglass is one of them, and we're gonna want to draw something like this eventually. But we have a lot of extra draws with these eggs in our hand. So you know, as long as we're making our land drops on time then we can utilize those extra draws faster, right? So if we, you know, if we decide to top this and we get stuck on lands for a couple turns, we're not going to be able to, like, play a rock and then crack it every turn. We're just going to be choosing between 
you know, blasting something or playing on rock. So we're not going to be able to have that velocity of going through our deck as much if we're if we're going to be stuck on lands. And yeah, you just kind of have to trust your deck that it's going to be able to find you the pieces that uh, are going to allow you to fight through kind of like the disruption that humans has to offer. Right. And and generally, like the more mana you have, the more you're able to dig through your deck, blow your baubles early, like sacrifice this mind stone and stuff to try to find that stuff. Um, if you don't have mana, like that's the easiest way to lose, especially to humans with that has Thalia in it. The easiest way is just to not have enough lands in play and you can't do your you can't cast your spells and you can't yeah. work your the, the the components of the deck. Cause yeah, like that resilience, the number of different ways that KCI has to get around what your opponent has put you in, as long as you kind of have the mana to do it. And I mean this mostly comes from watching good players on coverage playing the deck. And usually, like, players that are, you know, winning and doing well in the tournament and stuff. But you see, like, really remarkable, I don't know if it's comebacks, but, like, they're in, like, not great spots. And then all of a sudden, like, some weird explosives trick, like, there is a scrap trawler and now all their cards are insane and they get out of whatever situation they're in. But you can't do that if you can't activate your artifacts and stuff. So, right, I think that the whole concept of, like, you know, you still want to be able to play magic. You still want to have that velocity of, of digging through your deck if you need to with these with these rocks mm-hmm. and everything. Is, you know, that's that's kind of, like, the biggest reason, I think, to want to, to bottom this piece. Even though it is a good piece and you're going to want to draw something like this eventually, humans is really good at punishing decks that, you know, punishing anything, anybody who stumbles, right? And I think that keeping this card on top is just, you know, making it so much more likely that you're going to stumble. And and that is more from a perspective, like, I've played a lot more humans than I have played, I I really haven't played KCI at all, because I play most of my modern online, and I'm not really willing to play KCI online (laughs) right now. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) Um, So that's my feeling from someone who's played against KCI and, and watched it more than someone who's actually played with it, so... yeah. um, but, you know, that perspective might even be more valuable for this decision than a person who's only played KCI. Putting yourself in your opponent's shoes and, you know, and trying to figure out what they are going to want to see you do is is a good, like, kind of mind trick for figuring out some close decisions. Right, and I really want to see my opponent miss a land drop on turn two. <laughs> that's, that's really what I want to see as humans. Right, yeah, yeah. It's like humans, you know, my KCI opponent doesn't hit their second land drop and I'm playing humans and I've got, you know, some disruption in my hand. I'm feeling pretty good about what's going on there. Definitely. So, speaking of humans, shall we talk some modern and some SCG indie results? Let's do it. Yeah, so... Humans uh, is back on the map, baby. Let's go. (laughs) Humans is... Meat is back on the menu. Humans are back on the menu. Yeah, the, the finals were Burn versus Jund. But we don't really care about that because uh, 25% of the top 32 is humans. Uh, and that is pretty remarkable. I, I think that's really the story of the tournament because uh, we don't see that happen in modern. We usually see a top 32, and if a deck has three entries in the top 32, like that's quite a bit if they make 10% of like the, the winning decks. Um, for it to be a full 25% of the top 32 of the tournament. Um, and, and every one of these lists had three or four Militia Buglers in the main deck, and I'm sure that had a lot to contribute to what the the, the power of the deck, um, yeah. how well it did. And yeah, 
like humans is here. This is this is a humans format, I think. The bugler was able to call back the humans into into you know dominance in modern, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah, militia bugler. You know, I think that we can say pretty safely right now is going to be a staple in humans moving forward. We've kind of like filled out that flex slot that we've been so desperately trying to to do for a long time. It's just, it, you know, it does kind of everything that we want it to. It's a two for one against the the you know one for one removal decks. It finds the type of piece that you want in a particular matchup. Um, you know, humans is really strong if you can double down on the you know the type of cards that are really good against your opponent, whether or not that's right. you know disruption or you know aggression and like Thali's lieutenants or whatever. It's gonna find you what you're looking for, and that card selection is something that humans hasn't had access to before, and now that it does, it's it's really powerful. So yeah, I you know I definitely think that it it, it leveled up humans a little bit and um, made it made it pretty strong here. Yeah, and and it, like particularly it like strengthens humans in places where it was weak. You know, like you said, there was no card selection. All you could do was cash in horizon canopies for you know extra extra cards, extra looks. That's that's a piece that the deck was missing and now that like flexibility in what it draws is a big addition to the deck as well as that like pure card advantage is also a thing that the deck really didn't have you know unless you count stranding stuff in your opponent's hand virtual card advantage but it didn't have any raw card advantage and now it does and that's a way to fight against you know lightning bolt decks or supreme verdict decks uh it just you know it would be one thing you know like an upgrade to like mantis rider that's like a 4-3 instead of a 3-3 like okay like that doesn't fix any matchups it makes the deck a little better at what it's already doing militia bugler makes the deck a lot better at a thing that it wasn't capable of doing before and i think that's why it's doing so well right now yeah i agree i agree a lot so yeah that's that's pretty exciting um i think that we're you know that's going to cause another metagame shift with humans mm-hmm. kind of being on top, you know, uh, I think that people are going to have to be prepared for that in in many ways, and I think that one of the ways that you can do that is actually to play my next favorite modern deck right now, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Red Black Vengevine. Yeah, this has been getting a lot of hype in various like discords and discussions and stuff. We haven't actually seen it in a tournament other than like comp league five o's but yeah 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 tell us about this deck right so i wrote an article about it earlier this week and it you know it seven owed the modern challenge i think on magic online mm-hmm. and it's so it's for those of you who aren't aware it's vengevine decks have gone through a lot of like you know experimental deck lists we'll say <laughs> and and one of those <laughs> has been the addition of Bridge from Below and these effective, like, zero-mana creatures that die as soon as you cast them for zero, Walking Ballista and Hangerback Walker. They're both XX creatures, so you can announce it for zero, and it'll enter the battlefield and die immediately. Um, But that does a lot for the deck. It counts as a cast creature for Vengevine. So on turn one, you can do something like play an Insolent Neonate, use it to discard your Vengevine, and then cast a zero, and then on turn one you've made the 4-3 haster. Which is, you know, not bad. 
But the big reason why this version of the deck has gotten a huge spike lately is the printing of Stitcher Supplier. So this is a card that was printed in Corset 2019. It's a 1-mana 1-1 zombie. When it comes into play and when it dies, you mill 3, essentially. So it's just that card has kind of like created this... I, it's not really a different archetype, but it's like, you know, the it fits perfectly into what this deck is trying to do. So there's the Stitcher Supplier, which is going to help you mill over your bridges and some Venge Vines, and you're playing Visrasir now so that you can sacrifice it, and, you know, and a bunch of other stuff for more zombies, for yep. Bridge from Below. Um, essentially, it's like a graveyard combo deck, it feels like, with Bridge from Below and, and Venge Vine. And it's just doing all sorts of crazy stuff and super, super explosive. And uh, I've been playing a lot with it on Magic Online this past week, and I've been really impressed with the resi- like the consistency of the deck, which is something that you're you're always kind of looking for with these like crazy explosive decks. Is like you know if they're not consistent, then they're not going to be good. Uh, and I think the previous iterations of this deck were pretty inconsistent, but still pretty explosive. But now that we've, like, we're not really messing around with Hollow One anymore, and we're kind of almost more focused on milling ourselves than we are, like, you know, trying to, to loot more, then, you know, I think that's created a lot more consistency with this with this strategy. So I'm pretty excited about it. It's really, really explosive. Its matchups in Modern right now feel very strong. I think it beats up on humans pretty consistently, which is which is fun. That's a good um, spot to be in right now. Yeah. yeah, especially right now when everybody's super excited about bugler humans. You know, playing this graveyard deck. You know, humans humans is probably going to need to put a graft digger's cage in their in their in their sideboard now. But even even the like the non rest in peace leyline of the void hate against this deck isn't that great because yeah, you know bridge it's too slow. Right. I yeah. I've beaten many resting pieces because I'm just like, all right, you know, on you know, on turn two, if I'm gonna play, I'm just gonna dump a bunch of zombies and venge vines on the board, and then you cast your resting piece, sure. and then I hit you for eight again. You know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Stitcher Supplier just adds so like it. It is right. the it is absolutely the missing piece. It's hard to design a more perfect right. card to make this deck work. It's yeah. a zombie for grave crawler. It it is a cheap creature for venge vine. It's like it, it dumps a lot of cards into the graveyard. It it just does. It, it's like a perfect, like, efficient little package that that does exactly mm-hmm. what you want to do, for the yeah. deck. Yeah, and you know the, the these decks were always kind of looking for another one mana enabler, right? We had Insolent Neonate, which is really really good. Um, it has what was the other one? Oh, Faithless Looting. Um, which is obviously just a broken magic card. Um, and now we have a, you know, a whole other <laughs> enabler in Stitcher Supplier of, you know, just like another card that helps dump cards into our graveyard. So, right. yeah, so I'm, you know, S- super good. I'm pretty excited about this deck, honestly. Yeah, and it there's definitely plenty of room for like innovation and figuring out the right mix of, you know, like the like Cathartic Reunion and Corpse Churn slots are definitely up for debate. The like sacrifice outlet like i've seen lists with greater gargadon in place of viscera seer which does you know a, a bunch of there's a bunch of different like viscera seer's like scry ability is certainly good and the fact that it is a one mana creature for helping get vengevine into play when it's in your graveyard is a really important part but there have also been people who are have been singing greater gargadon's praises as 
like you can get it into play because you can sacrifice a decent number of creatures and if you need to sacrifice a zombie or two to get rid of the last counter then that's fine and you can do tricks with it like if you get uh you know you you have like a semi-threatening board that they want to cryptic command to tap down and then you can put in greater gargadon to attack after the cryptic command and that might even like bring a vengevine with it if it's your second creature or something like that yeah so yeah you know there's lots of cute stuff to do with gargadon but maybe just the the fact that viscera syria is a creature for one mana and gets your vengevines into play on turn two or whatever is is good enough and is better for consistency sake which is probably more important in a deck like this but there are definitely slots up for debate that are going to get sorted out over the next couple of weeks yeah yeah now that this deck is kind of like creeping into the limelight i you know i definitely expect that you know the 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 extra numbers like the flex slots or whatever are you know still up for debate and uh you know people are going to work on figuring it out and figuring out what the best options are for that i personally am a more of a fan of viscera seer i think that that card is really good it fits really well with like the uh goblin bushwalker plan a lot of the time so i think that i would play four viscera seers before i mess around with the first gargadon okay but you know a lot of a lot of lists are playing three viscera seers or you know some some lists are leaning towards the gargadons or they want like more sack outlets or something like that and so that's all you know that's all fine and i'm not i don't know really what the answer is for all that i've been myself testing out a couple of different iterations of it uh there's kind of like a like a three of slot that people are messing around with in the deck as well that's like some people are running cathartic reunions or some people are running blanking on the name of this card but it's like the mill three and and pick up a creature from your graveyard card just like extra enablers right corpse churn and i've been i've been testing out in that slot shriekhorn just like as an additional way of just dumping a bunch of cards in your graveyard Ooh, okay uh, to find take a cue from dredge yeah 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 that makes sense yeah, and I really like that just like as another, you know, pretty, you know, like one mana, pretty fast, dump a bunch of cards in your graveyard, you know, that's four cards immediately, so that's, um, or not immediately, but like, you know, by the next time you you untap, right? And that's like, you know, one more than Stitcher Supplier, and, and as we've seen, the Stitcher Supplier trigger is, is really, really powerful in this deck. So, yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of room for, for innovation here, and we'll see, we'll see kind of, you know, what people kind of come to uh i guess in a couple of weeks but i'm you know i'm excited about it this i've been i've been trying out you know i played goryo's vengeance version of this deck so i've been you know i've been messing around and trying to make trying to make vengeance lines work for a minute now but uh but yeah i think that this is finally the one that's going to be pushing it into maybe potentially tier one status right this is the first time that a vengevine list has you know looked like a deck to me you know yeah like the, the lists that have, like, hollow ones or whatever in them, or the when there were, like, you know, Death Shadows or something like that. Like, it just, it, it feels like you're reaching and you're just, like, pulling in pieces that don't quite fit together. And here, like, the pieces really do fit together. Yeah. I mean, those, those flex slots, you really wish you could run, like, three more Faithless Lootings, but we don't quite oh, have geez, that yet. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so we we make do, but yeah, it, it like it it is really starting to feel like a deck, and yeah, it the it's kind of crazy that like one of the big pieces is these X spells that like the deck would be almost as good if they were just zero mana zero zero creatures like 
that's really bizarre that that's a, a big piece of a modern deck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, they're pretty crazy. But, you know, if you do decide to pick up the deck, don't forget that, you know, it's still a walking ballista, and you can still use right. it to, you know, kill your opponent's noble hierarch or, you know, whatever, like, you know, random, you know, effects that you want to get out of these zero-mana creatures that, you know... Because, like, every once in a while, like, if you're playing against Death Shadow, it's really hard for them to beat just, like, a hanger backwalker on one. You know what I mean? <laughs> just start cranking <laughs> that guy up, and then they're just, you know, if they don't have an answer to it immediately, then they're going to have to, you know, fight through a lot of stuff there. So right. a lot of utility there, Yep, which I like a lot. And then Walking Ballista, even, you know, you shoot their Hierarch, you get two zombies, and then their Hierarch dies and you lose your bridges, but yeah. you got your two zombies. But yeah, I mean, you know, that the interaction works out in your favor because your guy dies first, which is pretty good. Yep, not bad. Yeah, so, I, I mean, we're, we're definitely thinking this deck is in the future of modern. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. I think that it's going to be a really big player coming up. And I honestly, I wouldn't be surprised to see a top eight in the next major event. I, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of that high on it. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if people just hadn't gotten the time in to like convince themselves, because we didn't really see it at all uh, at the Open this weekend. And there was mm -hmm. definitely something that was being discussed in the lead up to the Open, but has now become you know more well known. But I, yeah. I wonder if it was just too soon for that. Right. And, I mean, I think that we did see a guy, at, he was, like, 6-1 and one or something, and he played against Jody Keith, you know, in round 7, who was playing this deck, and ended up winning. So I know that at least one of these, you know, made day 2 of the event. Definitely, people are trying it out. But I think that, it honestly, this deck reminds me of kind of the beginnings of Crackclay and Ironworks a little bit, where Crackclay and Ironworks it has existed forever, like that that combo deck or whatever and but it took forever for people to you know figure out the appropriate builds and also figure out you know just like learn how to play the deck because playing this deck is really hard you you know you have to do all this weird sequencing stuff and often like you have the opportunity sometimes to to play a turn one vengevine or something but then you've like used all your resources to do that and maybe it would be better to you know, try to build up your graveyard and see how much stuff that you can hit and then do things on turn three or something like that. You know, finding the balance between these things is really difficult. And I think that it's going to take a lot of pilots a long time to, you know, become really proficient with playing the deck as well. So, And this one also has the advantage of having gained a new piece, which KCI didn't do and then somehow just, like, exploded. Right, right. right. I guess partially because we, you know, of the discovery of... That's kind of like gaining the, a piece. The weird play <laughs> pattern of... Yeah, it, it was basically gaining a piece, because you needed one less combo piece to do the combo right? because of that, that timing discovery. What a... Just still bizarre. Still very bizarre. Yeah. But that's, it is what it is. But pretty cool, honestly. Yeah. So, right. So that's all... You know, I'm pretty excited about this deck, and I, I think that everybody should keep an eye on on that moving forward. Yeah, and, and definitely, especially if it really is good against humans i mean it, it definitely gets started more quickly than humans humans takes a needs a little bit to rev up and and they'll be very far behind on board by the time that they do so yeah i can definitely see that matchup being very rough for humans right and um and kind of hilariously i think that like the biggest name that meddling mage needs to hit is grave crawler because if the if the Vengevine deck gets you know a Gravecrawler going with the Viscera Seer and a Bridge from Below, 
then they can just mm-hmm. make a bunch of zombies and it, you know it takes a long time for humans you know it you know it, like if the board stalls up or whatever then I think honestly the uh, the Vengevine deck is is favored in that scenario because they can just you know flood the board with a bunch of zombies through tricks with Gravecrawler or maybe even Bloodgast you know just like recurring your creatures and using your Vistra Seer to sack them and get the back and everything and uh, you can win a long game against humans with this deck, which is, you know, so not only are you more explosive, but you also have potential to set up, you know, certain board states where you're just generating value every turn and humans is just kind of like trying to draw something off the top, which is yeah good for you. That interaction makes me want to go a little heavier on the sack atlas. You know, like this list from the Modern Challenge only has three Viscera Seers in it and it's got, mm-hmm. you know, two Bloodgasts, which I think are a little bit medium in like both of this deck's plans whether it's like exploding out the gates and or like getting value out of bridges yeah um so i wonder if if you know later builds are going to go heavier on sack outlets to make that plan b of just flooding the board with zombies a little more reliable right right for sure yeah i mean you know i think that i've been kind of toying around with the numbers but i think that the best like you know smartest way to approach it is just kind of like doing the math on how many of each type of piece you want, right? So, like, you know, how many... I don't really know what to call them, but, like, the, the mill enablers or, like, the, the cards that put things in your graveyard. You know, how many how many pieces of that is, is appropriate? And then, you know... And then from there, we can see how many slots we have left over for, you know, how many more, like, payoff spells do we want? So, like, Bloodgast is kind of, like, an additional payoff spell, like an additional card that we can hit in our graveyard that's good for us. So, right, as soon as we, I think that we find the, the, you know, the right balance of, you know, discard enablers to, you know, pay off, like, graveyard hits, like, you know, Vengevine and uh, Bridge from Below, and, you know, Sack Outlets and Bushwhacker and all of those things, like, we, you know, as soon as we find the, the right balance of all that stuff, then we'll be able to really figure out, you know, what we want to be doing there. The right number of one-mana creatures, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of numbers that need tinkering with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I found a lot of times that earlier builds of decks, and I'm trying to think of an example, and I, I, I'm coming up a little bit short, but like earlier builds of decks often have, they go heavier on payoffs than is completely necessary. And then you realize, you know, as you learn about the deck, like which payoffs are actually good, which are the ones that actually win you the game, and which are just the ones that like seem like, okay, yeah, I'm dumping cards into my graveyard. Why wouldn't I want Bloodgast? Well, this 2-1 isn't actually, like, participating in the plan of the deck. I guess it's like, you know, jamming too many knights in your standard deck when it turns out that, like, oh, a couple of two-mana knights in History of Benalia is actually just good enough. It's And and more might be weakening your deck. Something like that. But exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, who knows? Like, Bloodgast could turn out to be like, okay, we do need these for grinding through Jeskai or something like that. But, uh, yeah, definitely tinkering to be done. And, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the number of Bloodgasts, like, either, you know, if it if it's, like, zero in the future and we're like, yeah, this is clearly correct, then I wouldn't be surprised. But I also wouldn't be surprised to see it's like, yeah, dude, we want four Bloodgasts in this deck. It's probably like, one or the other, right? <laughs> right? Like, either it's a Bloodgast deck or it's not a Bloodgast deck. Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if the correct number of, like, payoff hits is, like, 10, and, you know, sure. it, it can be our, like, you know, ninth and 10th, ex, you know, graveyard hit or yeah. whatever that we want. Um, yeah. It, so. It's just so much less, like, flexible and powerful 
like the, and direct than Vengevine or Bridge from Below. That that like that's the easy one for me to question. But sure, again, sure. like I don't have the games with the deck. So, but kind of nothing exists that's quite as powerful as Bridge and Vengevine in this deck. So right, <laughs> we, you know, right, we, we got to right. find something somewhere. Definitely. Unless we're just completely missing something, and and there's another card that's just that's you know it's equally as powerful as those cards. <laughs> but. Just put more prized amalgams in there, and, and right. And, that's that's what I was gonna say. I don't think this is a prized amalgam deck, but I mean, it's not an impossible thing to have happen, I guess. Yeah, prized amalgams feels so much win more, win more in this deck, um, and yeah. just like not even that powerful once we get it going. We're not dumping right, like just... eighteen cards in our graveyard. We're dumping like six or so, you know. Right. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, definitely in the early stages of this deck. Looking at the meta game from the open, at least like the top 32, this is a super creature heavy meta game. Like, I mean, obviously a lot of humans decks, so that is part of, you know, it feeling very heavy on creatures, but there's also Jeff Hoagland top eighted with blue red wizards. Uh, there's affinity in the top eight, uh, Naya zoo, uh, another Wizards deck, a couple of Spirits decks, and Hollow One. Like this was a very much this was very much like a, a creature based aggro tournament. Like that is the stage of the the modern wheel that I think we landed on this weekend. Is is lots of creatures attacking for damage with some amount of disruption, but attacking for damage. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It definitely felt like that. You know that archetype was the most successful and just like kind of where you wanted to be. Uh, on on that wheel yeah and so that makes it you know less like insanely confusing that jund managed to win the tournament because right yeah like even though it's lost ground against humans i think it's mostly favored against most other creature decks i i mean i still don't think it's a good choice for an open to play jund but mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I mean, there were three in this top 32, so clearly, like, it was an okay weekend to be on Lightning Bolts and Liliana's. Yeah, and, right, and, you know, if, if the deck is just really dominated by creature decks, then I could I could see it, you know, having success there, as long as it was tuned to beat these creature decks, you know? Because I think that traditionally humans is favored against Chund, particularly with Militia Bugler, you know? I think that, you right. know, with Militia Bugler, you can pretty easily just, like, not only... Tempo out Jund, but also like have a pretty good late game against Jund. Jaden Klumperens wrote an article about sort of like her philosophy of midrange right now and why she played Mardu this weekend and why Jund was able to win. And she said a, a, a pretty interesting thing about, you know, Jund's plan against humans. And I've certainly experienced this from the other side, which is it's it's a little different from uh, you know, like, Jeskai's plan is to remove every human in play. And Jun's isn't really that. Jun's plan is to, like, remove the relevant humans, but often leave Thalia in play and strand the Thalias in your opponent's hand. And, uh, like, not care about the random dudes on the ground because there's, like, a big Tarmogoyf in play that, that things other than uh, Kitesail Freebooter and uh, Mantis Rider just can't attack through. And so, like, having those big ground guys enables it to play a, a different game from the, like, pure removal mid-range card advantage decks. And uh, while Militia Bugler is certainly good in the matchup, I don't think it 
changes that approach that Jund has of trying to, like, lock down the ground and then win with, like... I, I mean, Liliana is bad, so I don't know what the, like, long game winning approach is. Maybe it's, like... Because, like, Liliana and Bob are, like, the two main, like, going long card advantage engines, and those are both not great in the matchup. But I guess you just draw a couple of Blood Raid Elves and eventually push through. But, you know, like, Militia Bugler is A++++ against Jeskai, and it might just be, like, A against Jund, is, is kind of what I'm saying. Sure. I hear you. Right. I mean, you know, trying to grind out Jund is never really... A, a, a winning proposition, I guess I would say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if it comes with, like, a tempo start and then you're able to, like, find a few pieces with the bugler to really nail it in, I think that that right. is, like, a pretty good thing to be doing against Jund, so. Right. I mean, your whole game plan is not just, like, playing a bugler and then playing another bugler and then playing another bugler. Like, the game plan is now, like, I'm playing two creatures a turn, like, starting on turn two and going to turn, like, four five or six now yeah like and specifically i think that you know based on my experience with humans against jund jund is really good at like stabilizing the board and then like kind of trading off all of its resources right and then generally the board state looks like maybe i have a human or two and you have a tarmogoyf but uh you know we've traded off all of our other resources and you can't really attack because, you know, your Tarmogar's holding back, like, my, you know, my meddling mage and my my ground pounder or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But then we're both, both just top decking, right? And and that top deck war, I found, is, like, honestly pretty good for humans sometimes. Because, you know, if you if you draw, like, a, you know, a Manus Rider or something and they're out of answers and they're at a low life total, you know, the, the pressure's on them to find an answer to that, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, your your top decks against Jund have potential to be, you know, pretty powerful if it's something that they can't deal with. And Militia Bugler yeah. is just another card that you could draw after you've traded off all of your resources that Jund's just like, really? You know, <laughs> now I have to deal with right. two things. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's that, right. like, heartbreaking sort of, like, right. I don't think that yeah. there's any way for me to, like, I, I brick for a turn, my opponent draws Militia Bugler... Uh, right. Yeah. And you know, Jun Jun has spot. that too, right? So they have, you know, they have what's the Cascade guy? Blood Blood Elf. Great Elf. Yeah. You know, and that's that's their um I'm really bad with card names. I don't know if you could tell. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, um, and they have like Coligan's command and stuff that really uh, is worth multiple cards. But um you know, you're playing six fewer lands than they are in four of your land cycle as well. So Right, right, yeah. And, you know, and that's kind of like, you know, that's like a, a known quantity that we've known about, kind of like how d- legacy Delver decks get card advantage just by playing significantly fewer lands than than everybody mm-hmm. else, right? And that, that is a form of card advantage. You're, you're just drawing more gasoline more often. And humans definitely has that in modern, in these in these grinding yeah. matchups, where, you know, we're playing against Jund, and Jund is playing 25 lands or whatever, and humans is playing... You know, if you you know if you count all of the horizon canopies just as a cycle, then then we're only playing fifteen lands, and that that difference is really huge when it comes to just like who's going to rip a higher density of stuff. I mean, I guess you can draw your ether vials, and that's missing. Oh yeah, I guess but that's a we, brick as well. So nineteen bricks. Are, are we are we boarding those out in games two and three? I actually don't know what the philosophy about that is anymore. I I guess with buglers, you're less you're less excited to board out ether vials in any matchup but yeah yeah bugler definitely wants more mana for sure 
My philosophy against Jund was always on the play, you want to keep in your vials because mm -hmm. you can often, you know, get under Jund and like put a bunch of stuff on the board at, at once. And that yeah. is a really effective game plan against Jund's kind of like clunkier, you know, two mana removal spell draws, right? Um, right. I paid zero mana for this creature. Like, right, right. please terminate it. Um, and that plan works on the play, so I like vials on the play. I would keep in all the vials on the play. But on the draw, you know, Jun's now ahead of land, and and you're less likely to be able to kind of tempo them out that way. So on the draw, I like to take out all of the vials. Yeah, that makes sense. So, right, so there, you know, so it, it'll be dependent on play draw, but, but yeah. Definitely. So uh, I would be pretty off-brand here if I didn't mention that Jody Keith played Living End and uh, was not even <laughs> the only Day 2 Living End player. Gustav Linner finished in top 16. So these builds are what people have been playing online more commonly, and the main feature of it, as far as like the options that you can take when you're constructing your Living End deck, um, uh, for Archfiend of Ifnir, and for Simeon Spirit Guide, these are, I think, non-negotiable at this point. Um, yeah. I have been on for Simeon Spirit Guide pretty much since I've picked up the deck, and I don't think it has ever been correct to have fewer than that, because your deck doesn't do anything before three mana. Like, you cycle, and getting that extra mana at some point just does so many things for you, just, like, upgrades the velocity of your deck, and you rarely use all of your cards uh, like, yes, sometimes you draw three Simeon Spirit Guides. That sucks. But that is the price that you have to pay in order to make your deck functional, allow yourself to keep up with fast draws from other creature decks that you, you need to be able to beat are the whole point of this deck. So yeah, like, four Simeon Spirit Guides is correct and, and will always be correct, I think. But the... And Archfiend of Ifnir is great because it gives your, like, fake bad backup plan of casting big dumb creatures. It makes that, like, kind of a real thing. I've beaten humans by, you know, they, like, have meddling mages out. There's no way that I can cascade. I put uh, uh, an Archfiend of Ifnir into play on turn four with a Simeon Spirit Guide, and then, like, cycle a Street Wraith and discard a Fairy Macabre to just wrath them with my 5-4 flyer, and then there's not very much that they can do about that. Yeah, that uh, sounds really powerful, for sure. It, it Yeah, it, it's good. And that's why the, I think that this deck is constructed in the way it is. No Fulminator Mages in the main deck, which I don't love, but I understand that right now is good good because it's bad against humans and if a quarter of day two is going to be humans then you don't want your fulminator mages in the main deck like i it pains me to see them in the sideboard because one of the main reasons that the deck is good is that you beat a lot of creature decks because your combo just naturally beats creature decks and you beat things like Jeskai and Tron because you attack their mana in a really like repetitive way that is difficult for them to deal with. And pulling that dimension out of the deck certainly weakens your game ones against those you know mana hungry decks with lots of non basic lands. And I, I've said before like I don't know that this is the deck that you want to play if you're in an environment that wants you to put your Fulminator Mages in the sideboard, you should probably be playing something else. But looking at this metagame that we have right now from Indy, like, 
It makes a lot of sense. There are just so many creature decks, and you are not so good against humans that you can afford to have Fulminator Mages in your deck. Like, you are so strong against a deck like Hollow One that you can afford to have Fulminator Mages in your main deck. But humans, yeah. because they interact with you on a Thalia basis and on a on a uh, meddling mage basis, like they have gross things that they can do to you, and you need to have your deck streamlined in a way that sort of negates those things. And so having Fairy Macabre's main deck makes it more likely that like your hardcast and Archfiend of Ifner discard a couple of free cyclers to wrath them. Like that becomes a real legitimate plan after you've gotten locked out, as well as the. The no shriek maws in the sideboard and dead gons instead, because dead gone is much much better against humans. If they, you know, you can sometimes if they're gonna vile in a meddling mage in response to your your cascade, you can use dead to kill the meddling mage. Or what's really really important is like EOT killing Athalia, because a lot of times what will happen is they play Athalia, you shriek maw, it, and then they just play their second Thalia, and all you did was like turn on one of the cards in their hand so instant speed is really important for that so dead gone is is very good in just it's it's the removal spell you've got to play even though it's less like cute and synergistic with your deck and shriek maw is one of my favorite cards of all time so this pains me a little bit to say shriek maw yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense for sure but so yeah i mean i like these builds right now i like jody key's sideboard a little bit more just the deck is fine you're never going to beat storm with it you are going to only beat burn if your opponent has made suboptimal card choices or gets one of those like one land burn hands that can't keep up but uh and i think that this build right now is favored against humans even though you are often going to need to make some awkward plays and know the deck pretty well to get those percentage points that make you favored against humans but uh yeah it this is probably a good time to try living end if you're interested in it yeah I definitely agree with all that. It seems like a, a pretty, you know... I think that it's just, you know, some people have figured out the best build for the current metagame for for, for that deck. And whenever yep. that happens for a deck, then, you know, even if it's not particularly well-positioned generally, then you can definitely get a lot of equity there and, you know, have, have a lot of success. Yeah. I would say, though, if in, like... You know, if we see Vengevine do real great, like, at the Pro Tour... Uh, that in like two weeks or so you're not gonna be wanting to play another graveyard deck uh and fighting through all of the vengevine hate so uh you know yeah play your living ends right now and be <laughs> very very cautious about right. that and i think that the matchup that this vengevine deck has against living end is really strong because it's you know this vengevine deck plays four viscera seer and uh mm-hmm. a bunch of bridge from belows and you know, can just dump creatures into his graveyard. All things that, you know, living in doesn't want to see its opponents do. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it is complicated a little bit by stuff like main deck Fairy Macabre, but I don't think that's enough to buy you back into the matchup. Like, the way that Hollow One operates, you know, it's an aggressive graveyard-based deck, but the way that it operates, like, opens it up to living end makes it very vulnerable to the card living end in a way that the vengevine deck really isn't uh the sacrifice outlets are are pretty gross um yeah so that that matchup is interesting for sure 
And um, also another one of those matchups that's like, you know, both players are crossing their fingers and hoping for a ley line post board. <laughs> yeah, and, and that actually is one of my big problems with Living End, is that all of these, like, combo-y graveyard decks, ley line of the void is the good graveyard hate piece. Yeah. But the other graveyard decks get to run Faithless Looting as their, you know, one mana deck churning sort of thing. So you get to toss away that ley line you drew on turn two, three, or four. Living End cycles creatures into whatever is in its deck, making it more likely to draw Living End, and ha- or making it more likely to draw ley line of the void, and having no way to get rid of it. And yeah. that. It's just a brick, then forever. Yep. And it just sits there in your hand looking real, real bad. The thing that I think... So, you know, like, like Vengevine just got Stitcher Supplier, which is the actual perfect card to, to make that deck a thing. The thing that I think Living End needs is basically, like, Champion of Wits with a Voke of 1 and a Red instead of, like, Eternalize. If there were, like, a 3-mana 2-1 that comes into play and you loot 2 and it had, like, a Voke of 1 and a Red, that would be the perfect card that would make Living End a, a force, a real deck. Um, it doesn't exist right now, so you have awkward things, um, especially because once you have ley lines in the deck, you have so many bricked draws because you add your ley lines to your your living end, and over the course of a game that you cycle a bunch of cards, you're going to draw like two of those that just sit in your hand and don't do anything. So a way to discard them would be a, a huge deal for this deck and, and would give it percentage points in every matchup. Yeah, that makes sense, for sure. So other, so I think we got two more like big, I, I don't know, like big-ish things to talk <laughs> about. I don't know how big we want to call them. Uh, <laughs> sure. So we can start with Wizards. Uh, Jeff oh Oakland yeah. Made a hell of a run this <laughs> this weekend. Uh, undefeated in the Swiss, uh, scooped to one opponent so that he could go eat lunch, drew in. So I think he ended the Swiss at like 13-1-1 and uh, unfortunately lost in the quarterfinals. But yeah, Blue-Red Wizards, just all the lightning bolts. Uh, Delver of Secret. This is like the, like now we got a Delver deck in modern, sort of. Uh, what do we think about this? Yeah, I mean, this Blue-Red Wizards deck has definitely been kind of creeping up a little bit. I've seen it more and more. People are playing it. People are excited about it. Wizards Lightning has you know impressed me a lot in this deck just it's so often just another lightning bolt that you know that they're just like so many like good wizards that you can just kind of play that make the deck feel just like a normal delver deck even though you do have these tribal synergies and stuff yeah it it plays a lot like legacy blue red delver yeah Uh, yeah just lots of bolts uh delver of secrets more bolts and, and a couple of counter spells yeah Right. And it's definitely, like, you're going to get a lot of percentage points playing this deck because a lot of people kind of don't know exactly what's going on or what they need to be doing. Especially in modern right now, people are just kind of, like, not used to, you know, playing that kind of game against, a, like, a Delver deck. So there's definitely a lot of equity to get there, you know, like having a spell starter Sprite or something. Like, people just, like, don't have that card on their radar when they're sequencing their spells. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure that you know Hoogland I mean, got a lot of that equity. He did. Over the, I, over the I think of the he, tournament. 
he ob- objectively did. Every match that I watched, and he was on camera, you know, several times because he's well known. He has an audience. Like it's smart for them to put him on camera. He's playing a cool deck. Um, yeah. So I got to see several of his matches, uh, and in I think every single one of them, his opponent made a serious misplay at some point in the match, um, just because they weren't familiar with the deck that they were playing against. And you know, so I don't remember all of them. There was one where you know his opponent had a tough choice to make between like blocking with a tireless tracker and trading, uh, and or not blocking and going to three. Which, you know, if you had known Hoagland's list, you would have known that he's got... And, and maybe this is something that should have been guessed, but he's got four Wizards Lightning, four Lightning Bolts, four Snapcaster Mages. Like, you cannot go to three if the game is going to last more than one or two more turns. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it was a lot of plays like that. Um, like a humans player not really understanding the clock that Nimble Obstructionists could put them on, that sort of thing. The, you know, this... As Hoagland has it built like a major part of the deck is these three mana three one flash flyers which just put a surprising amount of damage on the table very quickly and so knowing about those things i think you can play a lot better against this deck and it's probably more of like a 45 percent against the field kind of deck yeah yeah um but not knowing about those things like if your opponents are gonna punt punt it to you in in a, a few of your matches that might just be all you need to to make this an acceptable deck if your opponents know what's in your deck and are playing well against you, then I'm not really excited to play a Delver of Secrets deck with 21 non-creature spells in it and no way to set the top card of you. Like, Delver of Secrets just has a 33% chance to flip each turn, and there's no way to influence that with this deck. Right, yeah. And you do get upside of like it being just like a 1-mana one 1-1 one, one wizard, which is like, you know, turns on some right. of your spells and stuff like that, and that's fine. But, but yeah, don't don't really like those odds in general. Yeah. So, you know, it's it, it looks like a fun deck. A lot of it operates at instant speed. And uh, obviously, if your opponent isn't expecting it, then they're very likely to make mistakes against you. But the power level is just not incredibly high. Yeah. You know, there are snapcasters. Not very high in that deck, for sure. And, and, and he beat humans a lot, I think. Uh, and I think that's based pretty heavily on this being a, a bolt snap bolt deck, which always yeah. causes problems. Yeah, for you're humans, playing you're playing like eight or like ten bolts if you're counting the shock that he was playing essentially. And they are, you know they all have different names. <laughs> you know, you like do I name Wizards <laughs> Lightning or Lightning Bolt with my meddling mage? You know, that's well, that's just kind of like your a, meddling you know, mage a good is angle get to take on burst lightninged. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. And, you know, the two main deck Lava Mancers definitely don't hurt that sort of matchup. Also happens to be a wizard, which is, you know, so lots of cute stuff going on here. But, you know, like, there's only, like, a couple of actively good cards in this deck, if you know what I mean. Like, Snapcaster Mage and Lightning Bolt are the only, like, five out of five modern cards. And then the rest of the deck is sort of built around that, and... That makes me really hesitant to pick up a deck like this. Yeah, no, I understand for sure. I mean, I say this as a person who puts Monstrous Carabid in, in a deck, but, um, <laughs> you know, you yeah, know speaking, what I mean. Speaking of five out of five modern cards, Monstrous right. Carabid. <laughs> um, so yeah, Wizards exists. I, and I mean, Hoagland wasn't the only one. We've got another one, Jake Anderson, in the top 16. And another tribal deck. We've got Spirits has been really doing quite reasonably in modern um now we've got kind of multiple different spirits builds 
popping up both in the open and in Magic Online results and just kind of all over modern. Yeah, so there's like the traditional Bant spirits with Collected Company, and then we've also seen a good amount of just blue-white Aether Vial spirits. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, so Bant spirits is more of a known quantity. You know, this is a Noble Hierarch Collected Company deck that goes pretty heavy on like the three mana spirits, you know, all the drug skull captains, main deck geists, spell quellers to really maximize those collected companies, uh, is able to play pretty heavily at instant speed, uh, especially once it gets a rattle chains into play. Um, and the, the collected companies let it play kind of a long grindy game, uh, against even like removal heavy control decks. Um, but Blue White Spirits with Ether Vials is is kind of a different animal. I actually haven't played with or against this deck at all. I've just seen it a little bit on stream, but I'm not super familiar with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of taking more of like a Death and Taxes approach to um, to the deck. Like Bant Spirits mm -hmm. with Collected Company is like, you know, it's it's a Collected Company deck, and it's you know it's hitting a bunch of really powerful spirits, and you know accelerating its mana with mana dorks and stuff like that. But the the Vile Spirits is like it's more of like a you know we're trying to play Thalia and you know Spellqueller as like a big angle of the deck and everything like that. But yeah, to be honest, I am much less impressed with the Blue White Vile Spirits deck. I ran through a couple leagues with it on Magic Online and and didn't really like it. Okay. Uh, I think that, you know, eventually it's all going to be homogenized into Bant Spirits. I think that that's just, you know, the powerful version and the version that can better capitalize on playing cards like the New Lord and stuff like that, just being able to dump a bunch of stuff on the, on the board. Yeah, I think, like, one of the things that makes, that makes an Aether Vile deck really powerful is, like, you're down on cards after you play an Aether Vile. So you're either making up for that by finishing the game before several of their cards would come online uh, and like getting kind of virtual card advantage that way, or you take the, you know, like death and taxes approach of turning off enough of their cards to make up for being down that ether vial. Um, and I think that's kind of what the Blue White Spirits deck is trying to do. You know, it's got like Kira Great Glass Spinners in it. It's got Thalia's. So these are ways to say, like, okay, your removal spells don't work anymore, or your, like, combo pieces are really too expensive, and you're really hoping that things line up that way, but I think it just kind of does a worse job of this than humans does. Because humans, you can turn off their cards with Thalia, with Kite Self Rebooter, with Meddling Mage, um, and you just don't quite have as many tools with spirits to do that so i think you're you're hoping a little bit harder with blue white spirits and yeah, uh yeah. like like bant really has its own identity where it's approaching the game from a way that that other decks in the format aren't i mean there are other collected company decks but you know this is probably the best like collected company spell queller deck in the format and that's that's a good place to be that's a place that i understand the appeal and why you would want to play a deck like this I, I agree with all that, and I, um, yeah, personally, I'm leaning towards the Bant one uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So, we'll, um, yep. we'll kind of see. It's, I think, it's just you know, modern's in in this weird spot right now where people are like trying out a bunch of new archetypes and builds and stuff like that. And I, you know, I think that that's really awesome. But you know, it's going to take some time to see 
how how things play out and how you know what people decide is the best version yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I mean, this was a really cool weekend. There was lots of new stuff, things popping up that like we really haven't seen. Like Wizards is, you know, there have been rumblings, but it's not been a thing. And then Oogland makes top eight. There's another one in top sixteen. Like there's lots of new stuff happening, which is weird for modern. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So last modern point to talk about, I think, is the uh, chess guy control debate. <laughs> yeah. For those unaware, yeah, there's kind of been a debate that my teammate John Rossum has, has kind of put up on Twitter where kind of last weekend in Indianapolis, everybody kept on telling him that chess guy sucked and that the deck was bad and all sorts of stuff like that. And um, Rossum's a stubborn guy and he loves his chess guy. So he wants to kind of set out to prove to everybody that Jess Guy is a real viable archetype in in modern, and uh, you know it's had a, it's clearly had a lot of success on the Star City Tour. But you know who knows how much of that is just because a ton of people play it, or if it's like actually just like a you know percentage wise better win percentage deck. So he he said that he's going to write an article on Star City about it. And then I think it was initially Todd Anderson was like, I want to, I want to write the rebuttal for this. <laughs> and then Jerry Thompson <laughs> came in and bought Todd Anderson out. And now Jerry Thompson's going to write the rebuttal to Jess Guy being good. <laughs> um, so that'll be fun to see. I think it's coming up uh, maybe even like tomorrow on, on Star City. Yeah, so that's I'll, I'll be excited to read those. So one of the things that triggered that was that this is the first modern open top 32 in like a year that hasn't had just guy in it mm-hmm. um, yeah and it's it's kind of crazy to see that in this particular top 32 because it's so creature deck oriented yeah and the yeah. whole point of like you pick up just guy control it's because you want to murder creatures you have path to exile lightning bolt lightning helix supreme verdict like your deck is all removal spells and snapcaster mages to double down on those removal spells and this top 32 is so heavy on creature decks but jeskai wasn't able to crack it and i think mm-hmm. you know it, we're, we're humans so we want to construct a narrative we want to see patterns but eight of the decks in this top 32 so something like half of the creature decks that we're talking about here are humans and militia bugler might just be because the the game plan of jeskai against humans is kill every single human and Militia Bugler makes that a big job. And yeah. uh, now our humans are finding more humans. And then, you know, and then what are they going to do? And sometimes our humans are finding humans that take a card out of your hand. And then what are you yeah. going to do, you know? Like if your Bugler finds a Sin Collector, and then then all of a sudden that's a three for one. Yep. And you can't, you can't Snapcaster Mage that, that card I just took with Sin Collector. So, you know, like I, I was definitely on Rossum's side before the printing of Militia Bugler, when there was, you know, he, he got into it with Cedric a little bit before on who was favored in that matchup, and I've always felt like Jeskai was favored in that matchup. But we might yeah. be getting to a place where it just isn't anymore. Yeah. I could definitely see that, and, for sure. And uh, that's uh, that's a problem for, for Jeskai going forward. That's a serious right. problem for Jeskai going forward. And I think part of what happened in Indianapolis was the fact that kind of coming into this weekend like tron and like big mana decks were a really really popular choice right so i think that like especially in day one 
like all of those big mana decks were kind of like beating up on these Jessica decks in in Indianapolis. And, you know, adding on to that, the humans decks that were traditionally kind of like prey for Jeskai just got another mm-hmm. tool, right? So you are losing equity there. Um, so yep. kind of like all those factors kind of coming together and, you know, giving us this top eight where there just weren't any Jeskai players. Yeah. And, you know, maybe people were leaving Jeskai at home because they were, maybe not because they were afraid of Bugler so much, but because they were afraid of Tron, which, you know... If, if you think you're going to play against Tron twice in a tournament, you don't bring Jeskai to that tournament. So, yeah, and, you know, like, blue-white control might have been pushing it out a little bit. People are more excited. You know, like, blue-white control has a new thing. Like, now we're all running four Terminus in our blue-white control decks. Like, isn't this, isn't this cool? Isn't this a way to, like, break, you know, some of the tougher creature matchups, something like that? And, and so that might be more exciting for some of the the players who would have otherwise been running Jeskai. But yeah, I I'm not I, I'm not high on Jeskai going forward. Yeah. And honestly I think that I this blue white control deck might eventually just replace Jeskai. Like I think that all of the control players are probably gonna transition over to the blue white deck. Because honestly this blue white deck looks really, really powerful and um it might just be the next control deck of of, uh, of modern. Yeah. I mean, it it has tended to, in the past, Blue-White has tended to give up some points against the low-to-the-ground creature decks and gain a lot of points by uh, not being favored against Tron, but being able to beat it, which Jeskai almost isn't, unless you get, like, a real good bolt, snap bolt draw, and just generally, like, having more access to counter magic, uh... I mean, it's not like you can't play as much counter magic in Jeskai, but you are giving up something by running bolts and helixes in your control deck. So by running more card advantage planeswalkers, by running think twice, I can't get on board with think twice, but it's it's apparently a thing now uh, to run this time spiral block constructed card in your modern control deck. But yeah, but blue white, blue white is good. You can run all of the field of ruins. Uh, you can yeah. I mean, I guess people are not running. Spreading seas in blue white control anymore, so I don't know. Like you probably still just straight up lose to Tron, but uh, you know more counter magic. Exile removal makes you have game against uh, Hollow One, which Jeskai really struggles with. You know those big creature decks. Uh, Terminus. You know if if Vengevine is the deck going forward, then you really want to be on a Terminus deck and not on a Lightning Bolt deck. Right. Yeah. For sure. But yeah. So that's modern. Uh, Definitely pumped to see what happens at the Pro Tour this weekend. This is our, like, second Pro Tour with Modern in it in three Pro Tours, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, definitely looking forward to that moving, you know, kind of this weekend. I think it'll be it'll be fun viewing for sure. It'll be interesting to see, you know, kind of like what the viewing experience is for, for this team event. Yeah, definitely. The Like, we're used to watching SCG team events and not as much uh, like the Watsi coverage team events. So I wonder, you know, like like we kind of know the teams at the SCG events, like a lot of people ha- have found their teammates and, and keep coming back. And so those are like fun storylines to watch. And, and yeah, like at the PT, people team with their pro tour teammates. But even though that's something that like Wizards has been trying to push, like I can't really name any but like the top couple of 
of Pro Tour teams. So I, you know, I wonder if they'll do a good job of like constructing narratives or telling stories about their players or you know at least we get to watch pgo be a team and then play in the pro tour so that's something yeah for sure uh i, I think that there will be a couple t- teams that will be you know recognizable and excited to see um and i'm sure that they'll be on camera for the first couple of rounds but you know we'll see you know we'll see which teams make deep runs you know and stuff like that it'll be interesting to see what um uh you know what kind of yeah. comes up there yeah, and a lot of money on the line in this pro tour. So that's you know that's its yeah. own sort of, uh, for sure. I don't know, just like gives some stakes to the whole thing. So that's cool. Right, right. So why don't we do a question of the week? Our Patreon question of the week this week comes from Lee. He asks, uh, "In Magic, what puts you on tilt, and how do you deal with it?" And I think the the easy like like. The, the answer that we want to give is like, well, I just don't tilt anymore. Uh, I used to maybe sometimes, and, and but now I like have more perspective and it's not as big of a deal for me. And, and I think there's a, a couple of different things that we can talk about when we talk about tilt. I, so there's like internal tilt and external tilt. And uh, I, if I'm at a tournament with human beings around me, I do not allow myself to tilt in a way that can, like, affect people around me. Like, Jerry has talked about this on the game podcast where, you know, he used to be a really bad tilt monster when he was younger. And, you know, like, he felt like he deserved to win most of his his matches, especially when he was playing against people that he thought were worse than him. And so his, like go-to response to losing matches was like to make his opponent feel as bad about it as he did and obviously now he recognizes that's just a terrible like garbage way to be a human being and you can't do that to other people so i've definitely found that i am affected less by tilt in like paper magic because i don't want to like inflict any discomfort or like pain on my opponent like they won the match, like, fair and square. Like, the the rules of Magic dictated that they won the match. And even if they got lucky, even if it was a good matchup for me, even if they played badly and and I, I think that, like, oh, man, I, I could have won, I should have won, whatever. Like, seeing somebody in front of you that is a human being, for me, makes it really hard to be a, a jerk to them. What I do still suffer from is playing like magic online if i'm just home alone and i you know like my uh storm opponent turn two combos me uh just like had the perfect or like i thought seized them and then they combo me through that by drawing exactly what i thought seized it's really difficult for me to just like keep that all inside uh that the just like the perfect variance to like completely destroy me make some decision wrong that that like was the right decision probably but uh feels wrong because they got paid off immediately because my opponent is just like a faceless like thing on the other side of the computer screen and i would never type anything into chat or anything like that but it affects me in a much different way when I'm playing on Magic Online. And that's something that I'm, I'm struggling to work on. Like, one of the things that has helped me is making sure not to, like, vocalize my tilt. Because it's that thing of, like, if you smile, you kind of make yourself happy. If you let yourself, like, vocally rage, then I think that, like, makes you angrier. Yeah, that makes uh, a lot of sense, for sure. 
So, and, and maybe it's just because I still, like, haven't ground enough magic. Maybe once I get game, like, 500,000 in, then, like, I won't get too worked up. Um, but, you know, things that have made me tilt less. Number one, when I am uh, not grumpy about things for other reasons. Like, if I'm uncomfortable, if it's, like, too hot in my apartment and I'm, like, sweating and, like, don't feel good and maybe haven't eaten, it's much easier for me to just, like, get real grumpy about stuff. Uh, if I am doing particularly badly, sometimes the, like, weight of wanting a bunch of comp drafts in a row is kind of difficult for me to deal with. And the decision that I need to make more often is to walk away and stop playing Magic for a while, but I so badly want to redeem myself after, like, losing four game four match ones in a row that it's really hard not to just click join draft. Um, <laughs> yeah. I need to s- stop doing that. Right. We gotta redeem our previous four ones and draft again. Let's go! <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> and, I mean, like, one of the, the big things has been, like... Being happier with who I am as a person and my general place in life. If too much of you is tied up in your magic results, and like magic can be important to you, and your self-worth is does not have to be tied up in your magic results. But if like magic is kind of the only thing you've got going on, it can be really easy you know, if you, like, don't like your job very much or whatever, or if you're, like, in school and you don't, like, love it, or if you're, like, like, friendships aren't going well or something like that, but you're, like, holding on to magic as a thing, it can be easy to to tie up your self-worth and how you do. But if you're treating magic as a process rather than as a means, you know, rather than as a, uh, like, destination, like, the results become really important if you let them but playing the games should be more important and this is all should be you know tilt is like this instinctual internal thing that like happens and it's really hard to just be like okay well i'm gonna be an adult and not tilt that's that's just not really how our brains work but if you can put yourself in a place and like notice when you are tilting more, is is it because you're physically uncomfortable? Is it because you're like mentally out of it and like like three owing this draft is like the only good thing that's gonna happen to you today and you're actually getting mad because like you wasted three hours and didn't get the things done that you wanted to do and you didn't even win the draft? Like what's actually the problem there? I, I love looking for what's actually the problem because that's something that, you know, so many people just, like, don't even think about. Um, it's so easy to focus on, you know, the surface-level things and not dig into what's really going on that could, you know, fix all the surface-level things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're in a good, healthy mental place and if you've eaten a good breakfast, um, I think you're going to be a lot less likely to tilt. Yeah, that makes sense, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I like what you mentioned about, like, the external and the internal tilt stuff. Because I, part of who I am is trying to, like, something I know about myself is that I'm always looking for the people, making the people around me happy and comfortable, right? So the whole concept of, like, doing something to, you know, to to make somebody else feel bad about something is just not really part of part of my nature right and as a result of that i definitely stifle any external tilt because i just want my opponents to feel happy about stuff 
and just right. people around me in general, right? Making sure that making sure that your opponent knows that they got lucky to beat you, right, is not. Yeah. It's not an okay thing to do. It's not important that they know that, no matter how much you think they, they should know it. <laughs> right, like, right. you will feel bad 10 minutes later. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but, you know, there, there are definitely things that, you know, that people do or that happen in the game that, like, annoy me, right? You know, nobody likes to flood out and die. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there are definitely things that, you know, my opponents do that I'm just like, all right, are we doing this? Things like, uh, <laughs> you know, pile shuffling will just be like, okay, I see that we're pile shuffling now for the third time. <laughs> um, or, you know, insisting on high rolls is like a new recent thing. People asking me what my record is at like at a tournament, stuff like that. You know, there are definitely uh-huh. things that people do that, I'm, that annoy me. But yeah, like I guess tilt for me like has a very specific connotation of like, external rage or whatever but that's just probably not even you know accurate to what the question is trying to say yeah i mean my internal tilt like at live tournaments and stuff like i will and this often happens if i've made a misplay that cost me the match or 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 at least like left me without an out that i could have had otherwise Mm -hmm. um i i get really I, I get a little bit worked up inside and i kind of don't want to talk to anybody and i need to like go like seethe in a corner a little bit usually because i'm mad at myself oh yeah i've definitely been there where i you know i've like playing in a tournament making a pretty deep run or whatever and then you know and then i pick up a loss it's just pretty clearly my fault <laughs> i often find myself just you know you know shaking my opponent's hand and walking out of the convention center and maybe like walking walking outside and going around the corner and sitting on some steps or something for a little bit and just kind of uh you know yeah getting away from people and letting myself internalize or or whatever just kind of like you know because i'm i'm pretty hard on myself when it comes to making a lot of those mistakes uh and stuff because i you know i so desperately want to uh you know learn from my mistakes and and improve and everything and you know especially if i've made like a the same type of mistake that i've like mm. made recently or something like that then yeah um, you know it's kind of tough for me to to to, to process sometimes yeah, and I will say that I think in during the tournament is not necessarily the time to process that. Uh, I think that, you know, if it's like a particular, you know, if it's like like screwing up the order that you're like putting your lands into play or fetching your lands or something like that, hopefully you're like, because you made that mistake in that tournament, like your next round, you're not going to do that. Um, and I think that like trying to fix this whatever the mentality is that lets you make that mistake i don't think the middle of the tournament is the right time to be spending that mental energy i think the most valuable thing that you can be doing is whatever you need to do to pull yourself out from whatever this like like mental hole that you've gotten in and so it's really important i've found for me to not let myself keep thinking about that mistake that i've made and if I need to, like, listen to music, if I need to, like, sit somewhere, and, like, like a lot of times I've been like, God, I just want to be alone. And then I run into somebody, I'm like, okay, I guess we're talking. And then, like, <laughs> like five minutes yeah. later, like, we are talking and I'm not thinking about the thing that I did. Right. Or I'll, I'll tell the story and it becomes less, 
you know, because part of the problem, part of the thing that you're thinking about with the misplays is like, God, I'm a complete idiot for doing this. Like, what does this mean about me as a person? This is so embarrassing. But like, it is magic and we will make mistakes. And a lot of times, like, I've, I've been like embarrassed and feeling awful about a punt. And then like one of the reasons that I'm I don't really want to talk to people is because the conversation will eventually turn into me describing my punt. But then after I've described it, I usually feel better because like everybody has made mistakes like that. And usually they'll talk about it or we'll just like laugh about it. And it's not like, like you realize, oh no, my friends aren't going to think less of me because I screwed up this attack. Uh, like they're still my friends. And then you like, Sometimes that helps contextualize things, put things in perspective a little bit. But yeah, I, I think the middle of the tournament is not the time to be like, okay, like here's this mistake that I need to never make again. What do I mentally need to do to never make that mistake? I don't think you can fix that in the middle of the tournament. I think the best thing to do is get yourself back to even and then go play another match. Yeah, I understand what you're saying there for sure. Um, but yeah, tilt. It's tough. Got to deal with it. And... Mm-hmm. it's hard i I don't think that it's reasonable just to say like don't ever tilt like it's like a a a reflexive response Uh, i think the better method is to figure out like what makes you tilt and why you are tilting and like work to kind of solve that from the outside if you can sure yeah but you know you, you know it's fine to tilt just don't you know don't don't try to make other people feel bad if you're feeling bad would be a a good takeaway from that i think I, I think that, right, that's the most important thing. Like, even if you're beating yourself up inside a little bit, and I don't think you should, but the worst thing that you can do is be a dick to other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be excellent to each other. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a good takeaway. So I think that's pretty much all we've got for this week. I am pretty pumped to start watching the PT tomorrow because of time zones. I got to wait until the afternoon to start taking it in, but it's going to be very exciting. Yeah, I'm. I'm also excited. I'm. I'm pretty. Pretty hyped to see a, a team event, pro tour, and yeah, you know, definitely. team events of you know, we're kind of getting to the point where they're a little overplayed now on the Star City tour. But um, you know, the fact that it's like a pro tour and and stuff like that, it'll be interesting to see kind of like what people are coming up with there. Yeah, that should breed some life into the the team tournament experience. I think definitely yeah. agreed. All right. Well, cool. Thanks so much to everybody for listening. Uh, If you want to support the podcast, you can find us on patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Uh, You can throw a little bit of money our way. We've got some rewards up there, including uh, access to our Discord. And I've put in an order for some tokens that we will hopefully be able to start sending out soon. And a little bit of work has been done on arranging, you know, some other goodies that may take a little while longer to come to fruition. But if you want the, 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 uh, low down on that then maybe come hang out in the discord and we'll we'll give you updates you can also find us on our website uh, mtggrindcast.com and you can click through to the patreon from there you can also find our social media profiles and stuff like that and coaching from collins we are also on twitter i'm tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast and collins is also on twitter at collins mullen yeah so thanks again for listening and Hope everybody enjoys the PT and has a great week. All right. Till next week. Bye.